Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Thursday, the 6th of February, 2020. It's Thoughtful Thursday. It's Thirsty Thursday. All right, so on Thirsty Thursday, let me lift up a word of the Lord. Um, As always, my provocative thought and question is, where in the word are you today? Uh, Let us be found in Christ, who is the word of God, and let us then find ourselves in the word of God, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, that we might encounter God and spend some time in his presence today in order that we might know him better. Um, It's one thing to love God. It's another thing to like him well enough to spend any time with him. So there you go. Uh, I'm in Romans chapter one. And as uh, as a member of a particular congregation that is entering into a verse by verse study of the book of Romans, I'm probably going to be in Romans for a couple of years. So uh, I'm in Romans chapter one. Um, this morning, I'm at verse 16. And let me just tell you that verse 16 is is a verse that you could circle back around to literally any day uh, of the week and any week of the year. Verse 16 of Romans chapter 1 declares, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, Romans 1.16 is one of those, uh, if you believe it, everything changes verses of Scripture. Um, If you believe the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation, what is different about your life today? What is different about the way you see things? What is different about the way you see yourself and others? What is different about the way that you live your life in the world that God so loves, if in fact the power of the gospel brings salvation. So do you believe the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation? Like that's a really essential question to start with. Um, And do you believe that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to you? And do you believe that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation not only to you, but to everyone who will be saved. When we, when we think about the concept uh, or the reality of shame, are we ashamed? Are we reticent to share the great power of the gospel unto salvation that we have received? Are we ashamed or reticent to share it with others? So let me just say that I'm with Paul on this one. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to receive it. I'm not ashamed to admit that I need it. I'm not ashamed uh, to share it with others and to acknowledge that everyone stands in the same kind of need together in terms of salvation. So uh, be the not ashamed to admit your need for a Savior today. We all need saving. We're all in this together. No one is perfect, far from it. And the enemy would have us live under the condemnation of guilt and shame. 
the, the enemy would have us live as people who are ashamed. But what if instead we acknowledged to God that we know our need for salvation and we accept the gospel that he graciously offers in Jesus Christ and we accept the power of the gospel uh, to save? What might happen? What might happen? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That's the message for today and every day as we live as the redeemed people of God in the world that he so loves. Next up, Ben Johnson. He and I are going to talk about the difference between social programs, social good, social welfare, and socialism. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right. Joining me again this morning, Ben Johnson. You can find him on Twitter. He's at The Rights Writer. You can also find him at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Welcome back, my friend. Good to be with you again, Carmen. So a word came up. It comes up frequently. um, But a word came up in the State of the Union address, um, and, and the word is socialism. And the president of the United States, you know, committed to steadfastly resist socialism. And yet there were many, many things that were discussed in the course of the State of the Union address that are certainly social programs um, and even an expansion of some social programs that might have been a surprise to uh, to conservatives watching and listening. So I would love to talk with you about the difference between social welfare, social programs, social good, and socialism. That sounds exciting to me. You know, uh, socialism, of course, uh, when we think of socialism, we, we think of something like maybe the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics or communism, uh, when uh, uh, traditionally or apocryphally, uh, Lenin was once asked what communism is, and he says it's socialism in a hurry. Uh, so socialism is where we have the complete uh, government control of the means of production. The government is in control of the industries, and it redistributes the wealth. It, it's literally in charge of the economy. Then there was known as the welfare state, or uh, Pope John Paul II called it the social assistance state. And uh, this is primarily what you have in places like uh, the Nordic states, much of Europe. Uh, these are European welfare states where private uh, businesses are owned by private individuals. However, there's a large, a large amount of redistribution of wealth. Uh, for example, the Netherlands, Sweden... Uh, these are countries which um, have very favorable policies toward capitalism, business formation, and uh, they're very entrepreneurial in many ways. But then uh, the government redistributes that wealth through tax credits, tax subsidies, tax uh, 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 incentives for uh, various individuals to, to perform different kinds of things like child care, uh, credits for going to college, and so on. That's what a, a social welfare state is, where it's private business, but there's a lot of redistribution. And then you have social programs uh, like Social Security in the United States or government-run programs like public education, where the United States very obviously mostly capitalist, however, uh, increasingly uh, what might be known as a corporatist kind of, uh, kind of government where there's a lot of cronyism, particularly at the federal level, and the more that the federal government is involved – uh, the greater there is the potential for duplicity or for back uh, back scratching uh, for um, for people to be able to benefit themselves at the cost of others. So uh, those these are sorts of the systems that we have 
that's not to say that every social program is uh, is terrible. Obviously, there are many very good ones. Uh, it's simply the case that uh, in many cases, uh, the uh, the social program is offered because there isn't a private sector um, uh, alternative. Uh, the government has sort of crowded out the private sector. And uh, we know that generally competition is better, particularly for one of the issues which the president raised, which is school choice, as we discussed last week. So school choice is, uh, is an, I think, an example that we could point to and we could say, I, I, I absolutely look at that as a social good. And I feel like um, helping people who want to go to, uh, a, to a school where the Christian worldview um, and or a classical education is provided, um, I feel like helping them do that. Uh, I know that the language of opportunity scholarship is now uh, at the level of awareness for, for some people after the State of the Union who before may have not known what an opportunity scholarship is. And so when we think about um, things that we like and we appreciate that are uh, that are a social good, that are paid for through through tax dollars or through corporations not having to pay taxes because they are putting money into the funding of these programs. Um, so it's a it's it's still a ta- it's still tax money. It's just organized in a different way. Um, I think that it's helpful to help to, to help us understand how that's not socialism. And so when we when we're having a conversation, particularly about the election of uh, of the president in 2020, and we have people who are running on a socialist platform, what they are looking to accomplish is very different than just the magnification of, of current programs that we would view as socially good. Yeah, for example, Bernie Sanders, when he looks at uh, uh, health care, there's no question health care in this country is in a crisis largely because of these sort of half steps that have been taken for the last 50 years that bring the government into funding uh, or into control, or there have been incentives for uh, people to uh, increasingly turn over health care to private insurance companies. Well, that adds a layer of bureaucracy between you and your doctor. And so it, people wonder why their fees continually increase. It has to do with uh, incentives for private health insurance to pay for absolutely everything. Health insurance was intended to be insurance, uh, which is to say if there was a catastrophic event that you didn't foresee, or uh, there was an accident or a terrible illness, heaven forbid, then that policy would come in and cover that. But everyday expenses were, were not necessarily covered. That allowed the doctors uh, to, to charge appropriately, and people had a firsthand relationship with their, with their care provider. That allowed for more appropriate fees, and that allowed for a, an elimination of bureaucracy, a face-to-face relationship. Instead, the government has gotten involved Prices have skyrocketed, and Bernie Sanders comes in with a, a plan that would completely abolish all private health care. Uh, everything would simply be nationalized under Medicare for all. So you wouldn't have the ability to, to have a, a private health insurance. According to some versions of the bill or some proposals, there, there may not be any private provision of health care whatsoever. Every doctor would literally work for the government. Uh, and uh, so there was a, a CBO report about this, breaking down the various possibilities Obviously, the cost is going to be astronomical, but uh, what's more important than that is what happens, for example, in the U.K., where the U.K. Uh, the National Health Service has had its worst month in a row, three months in a row, uh, its worst month in history, three months in a row. Uh, so October, November, December, and uh, the only reason we haven't added January is because the numbers aren't out yet. But uh, 11.3 million British citizens waiting more than three weeks to see a doctor, 
Um, you have 421 surgeons who were interviewed who said that they've had to postpone cancer patients, and that's caused tumors to grow and expand and metastasize. That's the sort of uh, healthcare system that we're moving toward if you're looking toward a socialist healthcare system. All right, I am talking with Ben Johnson. Uh, one of the places that he serves is at the Acton Institute. You can find him at acton.org. When we come back, we're going to um, pivot the conversation just slightly um, to to look at what the president actually talked about, spent time on in his State of the Union address, um, and why some conservatives view some of, of the things that the president said uh, as, well, Let's see, touting central planning, federal intervention. We're going to talk about those things. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. Um, All right, Ben, you have noted uh, five times that President Trump I'm going to use the word attack to socialism in his 2020 State of the Union address. Let's let's uh, let's talk about those and then let's uh, respond to some criticism that's out there um, by some conservatives who uh, who say that the president spent an awful lot of time addressing, quote, uh, central planning, federal intervention in non-federal matters and a big government spending spree. And uh, correct on both points. You know, uh, where socialism is concerned, I, I think one of the um, highlights, it would have been the highlight for any other State of the Union speech, but he had so many outstanding guests, Charles McGee and others, that uh, it's it sort of got passed over. He introduced the true and legitimate president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido, uh, who who is the constitutionally elected president uh, of Venezuela under a Venezuelan constitution, and yet Nicolas Maduro has continued, uh, has persisted in that role more than a year now. So... Uh, during that in, during that discussion, he said, socialism destroys nations, but always remember freedom unifies the soul. Uh, I, by the way, I suspect he misread the um, the teleprompter. I think it meant dignifies the soul uh, is, is what he meant to say. And he gave perhaps the most spiritual defense of freedom that I have heard since Ronald Reagan. The idea that uh, the socialism is obviously a destroyer. At one point, Venezuela was the most prosperous nation in the country. It's not simply because of the fall in oil prices. It happens to coincide with Bolivarian socialism under Hugo Chavez. It was in decline during Chavez's life and uh, his death. And then Nicolas Maduro has simply uh, rode the ebb tide back into obscurity. But uh, you see that freedom gives us the ability through free choice to uh, to dignify our soul because we're not being forced by by the government to uh, to do things that are contrary to our conscience, as is the case in so many places, which he named, including Cuba and other nations around the world. Uh, he talked about health care. He said that uh, no parent should be forced to send their child to a failing government school. And you had that powerful moment, uh, which I thought was more powerful than Juan Guaido, when he introduced the nine-year-old girl from Philadelphia waiting for the mm-hmm. Opportunity Scholarship, gave her the scholarship. So uh, her... Her dreams are coming true there, and Lord willing, you'll have a a better opportunity for more children to have school choice. Uh, He talked about 10 million people being lifted out of government dependence, which is incredibly important because ultimately when people are reliant upon the government, that's going to bloat uh, the government's size scope and its power. The government is going to end up expanding into additional areas, and people will demand that you soak the rich in order to pay for the programs that they rely on. And you were beginning to see that. Uh, during the the worst of the Obama years, when uh, the recession was technically over, but there was a, a jobless recovery. 
And finally, the, the last one that I note is simply that when he gave the Presidential Medal of Honor to Rush Limbaugh, and that's, to, to my knowledge, that's the only time that a Presidential Medal of Honor has been displayed and bestowed during a State of the Union address. Uh, when he finished that, he said, we pray for all who are sick. Remember, socialism is built on dialectical materialism. Karl Marx was very clear that he had no higher power, that all of these, uh, he, he believed communism flowed from natural laws of economics, which he had observed and quantified. And so the idea of invaying, uh, invoking any kind of higher power was completely anathema to him. So socialism and a belief in any higher power, particularly Christianity, which has been the most fervent foe and victim of socialism, is itself a kind of an undermining of socialism. And so I was great to see that he did so. Um, I did think that when one of the things that most people didn't see um, was that Rush Limbaugh came into the chamber in a wheelchair um, and when presented with the Medal of Freedom, you know, I think I think that's a, that was a it was a defining moment, not only for the president, um, but it said a lot. If people can't pray for a person who is sick, if they if they are shouting down the honoring of um, really of, of anyone who um, has given his own life in in his own way in service to the country. I mean, I thought that the I mean, I know this pivots off of the point that we're on today, but um, I thought that the response of Democrats who shouted that down was very revealing. There was a lot of bad behavior on display in that chamber. There's no question about it. Uh, I thought that that was perhaps even more pointed than tearing up the message itself. Uh, here you have a man who is in stage four cancer. Uh, so, I mean, uh, Lord willing, he will recover, and that's that's what we pray for. But uh, he may not be long for this world. As you mentioned, someone who's very ill. And uh, whether you agree with him or disagree with him, I think that the, the proper way to respond to anyone uh, as I did when Ted Kennedy was ill, and, and uh, as many uh, many have throughout various illnesses, the only way to respond is with good wishes and with prayer. Uh, and yet, of course, we see that thoughts and prayers are mocked by um, by certain sectors of society today as being totally useless. So, uh, yeah, uh, when it comes to uh, say Ruth Bader Ginsburg's health, they may have something to say there. We should be consistent. We should pray for Rush. We should pray for Ruth. We should pray for everyone who's suffering. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, let us be Christian first, um, and certainly not partisan in our prayers. And so, um, Ben, it's always it's always such a great pleasure. It's um, it's, it's so helpful. Anything that you want to uh, close with as we really try to distinguish socialism from the social good that we do together collectively as a people um, through our through our process of combining a portion of our wealth in taxes and then making sure that sort of the least of these don't um, don't don't fall through what should be a legitimate safety net. I, I guess I just hit on a point that was made classically a very long time ago by a writer named Frederick Bastier, which is the idea that the idea that you don't want the government to do something doesn't mean you don't want it done. It simply mm. means that there may be a more efficient way of doing it or a better way of doing it. Frankly, private charity, especially religiously based charity, is the most important because you're able to look the person in the eye. You know the trouble that they're having. You can give or withhold appropriately. You don't, you're not bound by bureaucratic guidelines. You can tailor that program and minister to someone and be, go beyond simply giving them momentary sustenance to look down and deep into their soul and give them 
the word of hope, which is able to make us wise unto salvation and give them a brand new life, a new start, a new soul, and that will change their behavior more than any government handout ever can. Yeah, absolutely. And a community of hope. Like, right. It's it's you walk with a community of hope when you are um, when you are receiving that not just handout, but but hand up and come alongside and walk with um, kind of assistance that comes particularly through religious based uh, charities and organizations. So, hey, Ben, thank you so much. As always, we really appreciate what you're writing. You guys can find what Ben is writing at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Check out uh, his newest post five times. President Trump attacked socialism in the 2020 State of the Union. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. God bless, Carmen. Likewise. We'll be right back. So several weeks ago now, I asked you to share with me um, if you are a person who has experienced abortion in your past and you have a story of, of redemption and hope to share with others following that. Um, many of you responded um, in various ways, and I appreciate that. So thank you so much. Um, Kay Kiefer is going to be here next. She's going to share her post-abortion restoration story, um, and she's going to explain to us this idea that um, post-abortive women are everywhere. We are everywhere.life. Kay Kiefer up next here on Mornings with Carmen. If your teen is struggling, you know the stress it brings inside a household. In fact, you might be feeling the stress right now. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. For married parents who want to help their teen through a crisis, it's critical to understand that the stress that comes with it may land squarely on your marriage. You may find that your relationship with your spouse is strained, tense, or even put in jeopardy. So make it a habit to talk through it together. See this crisis as something you must tackle together. Present a united front, get outside help if necessary, and don't blame each other for the stress in the family. Remember, parenting is not a his or her job. It's an us job. And together, you'll get through it. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. So joining us today to share her own story uh, and to help those of us who have not had an abortion understand the reality of um, those within the church who have. Um, and so, Kay uh, Kiefer, thank you so much for joining us today and responding to the invitation uh, to to share your story. Oh, thank you, Carmen, so much for having me on today. Absolutely. Why don't we just start with um, um, with the invitation for you to simply tell us your story? Sure, I um, I'll do that. Uh, when I was 19 years old, I found myself facing an unplanned pregnancy, and uh, it threw me into a panic. And I immediately kind of went into uh, the mode of trying to cover up what I had done. And I thought the way to do that, the way to kind of push the reset button on life and start over would be to have an abortion. 
you know, we hear all the time about how abortion is the way or abortion is a decision the culture tells us that is between a woman, her healthcare provider, and her God. Um, the thing that I didn't realize when I did that was that even though other people uh, may not have known what I had done, I couldn't forget. And I also knew that God knew. And that was such heavy knowledge for me. Um, after my abortion, life didn't go back to normal as I thought it would. And I, I told very, very few people and kept that secret for 20 years. And who's the first person years. you told and how did they respond? Um, well, I had, I had told uh, a friend um, at the time that I found out I was pregnant, but I really didn't tell anybody else. And then when I started dating the man that I married, uh, we, our relationship was getting serious and I knew that he wanted to have children and I had, had developed this belief that God was going to punish me by not allowing me to have children. And I, so I felt that I needed to tell him that I had an abortion. The funny thing about that is I told him I had an abortion, but I didn't tell him that I thought that God was going to punish me by not allowing me to have children. And his response was very loving. Um, he, he didn't, I don't think at that point he really understood the impact that abortion had on me um, emotionally. So let's, let's talk about that because, you know, there's sort of the issue of abortion, um, which we think of in fairly political terms, but there's the impact of abortion and it's not, it does not just impact um, the life that is, uh, that is lost in abortion. It dramatically impacts the life of the woman. And so talk about the impact of abortion on you. Absolutely. I, I actually have a dear friend, uh, Jody, who she always says that um, with abortion, Satan is not content with the life of the baby. And once that deed is done, he goes after the life of the mother. And that is true. Women, women uh, will feel um, that they have committed the one unpardonable sin, the one sin that is too big or too bad to be covered by the shed blood of Jesus. Um, they will feel that it is the one thing that they can't tell anybody. They will be in church and they will look around themselves and think that nobody else has done what they've done, even though the numbers tell us clearly that that's not true. Um, many women will uh, suffer from depression and anxiety. Uh, they'll have issues in their relationships, their marriage, their parenting. Um, there's a lot of substance abuse involved and even suicidal thoughts and suicidal actions. So I want to read um, a couple of things from uh, the weareeverywhere.life website because uh, this is this is the ministry really that God has given you in this grassroots effort to reach women who are in churches across the country who have been negatively impacted by a past abortion. Um, And, you know, you're acknowledging here that uh, an estimated one in four American women will experience abortion by age 45, which means that there are women in every church sitting next to us in church, sitting next to us in Bible study and Sunday school, our neighbors, our friends, members of our family, pastors' wives, business owners, stay-at-home moms, 
Um, I think that when we begin to think about abortion as something that has touched, um, uh, that has been experienced, it's the impact goes far beyond the one in four women who have actually experienced an abortion because the impact is on every relationship they ever have after that. Um, so Absolutely. invite invite women who have had an abortion in the past, invite them into this healing and restoration that is this wholeness that's possible in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yes, and part of... Um, Part of, I think, what we need to do is we need to hear the words spoken in our churches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as women who've had abortions, who are going to church, you know, we, we have the deepest respect for our pastors and our ministry leaders. And we, we really need to hear them say, God can forgive your abortion. Um, and it's something that we don't hear. I, I, I think if I think if pastors and ministry leaders would think through even the last six months to a year and consider how many times has the word abortion crossed their lips, I think many of them would find that it, it has not been often, if ever. And this is not me trying to condemn pastors or ministry leaders, because I know they have such a huge job. But women who've had abortions sit in church just like I did and look like look like really nice church ladies and nobody would ever guess that they have this secret that's literally eating them up. And when we hear those respected leaders tell us, you know, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you cheated on your taxes, cheated on your husband, had an abortion or are addicted to pornography. Jesus can forgive that sin. I just think the spoken word is so important. And to have abortion be um, in, included in the list of, mm-hmm. um, of sins that we, you know, maybe hear enumerated more often from the pulpit uh, as, you know, these can be forgiven. You can be forgiven if you have, uh, if you have done these things or if you have done these things, you know, consider consider receiving the good grace of God that's offered in Jesus Christ and and to include abortion on that list. Um, I suspect, okay, that there are some people who hear the word abortion spoken not only from the pulpit, but in other uh, places and spaces within their church, but it is not spoken in the way that we're talking about now. Um, yeah. it, is, it is heaped, it is heaped with condemnation. And so, you know, I am pro-life from conception to natural death. You know, I am a person who advocates for, um, you know, a change in terms of the kinds of access that are available in America for abortion up to the very point of birth. Like there, I think it should be highly restricted and extremely rare. Um, I mean, that would be my hope. But on the other side of the conversation, I also recognize that anyone and everyone who has had an abortion is a person in need of grace and and in need of Christian community and restoration. Um, and so help help us who are pro-life and do want to advocate um, on the pro-life front, help us do that better. Uh, yes. I, I, you know, um, I have to share an example with you. Uh, my information was shared with a ministry leader in another state, and um, when he read through it, he he looked at the person that was presenting it to, to him, and he said, "Well, 
um, these women need to know that they've committed a sin. And <laughs> um, that was a little breathtaking for me to hear because what he doesn't, doesn't understand is that many women still are going straight to hell. They know they've sinned. Um, and I, it's, it's a very fine line in churches. And, and again, this speaks to the difficulty of being a pastor and the heavy weight of the responsibility of being a ministry leader. Um, it is a fine line because the, the truth about abortion needs to be spoken. The truth, the horrific loss of innocent life needs to be spoken. People need to realize that we're missing millions, millions of, of humans. Uh, but with that, um, I, I think that ministry leaders need to really seek God's guidance and pray and ask, how then do they couple that message with those words of grace and mercy and forgiveness that post-abortive individuals need to hear? Um, it's important because if, if there's a pro-life message spoken in church on a Sunday morning and it's it, it's wholly focused on the loss of, um, of, of innocent life. What happens after a sermon on Sunday morning? Everybody leaves the sanctuary and clusters in groups, and they talk about it. And you'll hear things in those groups like, who would ever do that? Like, what kind of a woman would choose abortion? Well, there's a woman standing in that circle who had an abortion years ago, and nobody knows about it. And when she hears those statements, she believes with all that's in her that she needs to hide her secret deeper than ever. And so I think even to have individuals, um, you know, uh, individual Christians and ministry leaders alike, really just think about the words that they speak. Um, because you don't know. Uh, post-abortive women, we feel like we're wearing a scarlet letter, but nobody can see it. Mm. Nobody can see it. Hey, Kay, we need to take a brief break, um, but when we come yeah. back, let's continue this conversation. I also um, I also want you to address, um, maybe just the, maybe I'll just ask the question this way, what about men? So we're going to mm-hmm. come back and continue our conversation with Kay Kiefer, um, and you can check out the resources, weareeverywhere.life. We'll be right back. You say when I can't feel a thing. You say Continuing my conversation with Kay Kiefer, um, one of the places you can find Kay is at the website weareeverywhere.life, weareeverywhere.life. Um, if you click on the resources tab, one of, um, one of the things that you'll find there are a list of Bible studies for those who are post-abortive. Uh, and as a person who has been interested in this conversation and interested in um, the, the real healing, restoration, um, wholeness that is possible after abortion. You know, I can tell you that finding a website where things are aggregated in this way, not only for women, but for men, um, was a wonderful surprise and delight. So, Kay, thank you for the resources posted at the website. Um, the The letter to pastors is really impactful and powerful. Um, I'd love to just have you reflect for a moment on what about men? What, what Give us a word for men related to this. Hmm. I, um, my heart just hurts, uh, for men who, um, 
have been involved in abortion. And, you know, it's, it's kind of an really interesting thing when you think about um, when a woman becomes pregnant, um, she is really in the driver's seat about the outcome of that pregnancy. Um, if, unless, unless she chooses to make an adoption plan, if she chooses to make an adoption plan for that baby, she needs to have the father's consent. Other than that, she can choose to either carry that pregnancy to term or she can choose to terminate that pregnancy without any, um, in, without any, uh, I guess, uh, not He doesn't even have to right know, word. right? She doesn't, doesn't even, even have, have to, to tell know. Him. Yeah. Right. So for men, there's a, there's a wide spectrum everywhere from the man who may never know that he, that, um, he had a child, um, or he may find out somewhere along the the way that, 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 um, he had a child, um, that was aborted. Um, so all the way from that end of the spectrum to men who, um, may, uh, this, say tell the tell the woman that they they need to have an abortion. Here's the money. I'll drive you. You know, and they're involved in that way, or even exerting some pressure. And I think as Christians, when you think about how God created men, I believe God created men to be protectors and providers. Not that women don't protect and provide, but I really believe that that's that's such an integral part of being a man. And when you look at abortion um, in that, from that, through that lens, a man who is, you know, created to protect and provide for a child um, instead is involved in some way in ending the life of that child. And again, the most defenseless life, the life, that cannot advocate for itself. And any time as individuals created by God, when we go against uh, the way that we were created by God, um, and it's the same for women. I mean, we have this unique ability to, uh, to uh, nurture a growing child inside of our bodies. And when we go against those things, it creates, a great deal of emotional, mental, and spiritual distress. They may not admit it right away, um, but it definitely can. Um, there have been men that have been outside of abortion clinics who have been trying to stop um, women from going in to abort their babies. Um, and those men can be arrested, basically, um, if they, you know, if they interfere with the process to a degree that um, the authorities feel that it's, you know, um, a crime or illegal. Um, but but I, I do, I think that, you know, when you look at our society as a whole right now, um, men are, are not getting um, a lot of respect. And um, I, I think that abortion has added to that problem. Mm-hmm. Um and an abortion, um, abortion in a man's life means he doesn't have to take responsibility. He doesn't have to protect. He doesn't have to provide. And and again, that that doesn't work. It doesn't work because it goes against God's design. Um, and beyond men, 
think about the people who are involved in the abortion industry. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, when they start to realize, if they start to realize what the truth is about what they're doing, I mean, imagine the tremendous guilt and shame and regret that is involved in their lives. Absolutely. And I think Kay and I both want to say uh, to you right now, if you're listening, um, even that, even that is not beyond the blood of Jesus. No. Uh, and so um, if you're listening right now and you are, you are post-abortive, you are a woman, um, you are a man who has been involved in abortion, um, you are an abortion provider, you are a person who has been a- engaged in the abortion industry, um, Kay and I want you to hear right now, that is not beyond God's scope of forgiveness. You can be forgiven. There is power in the gospel to redeem. Um, and so we just want to invite you to uh, to visit the weareeverywhere.life website and get the resources that you need. Kay, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing your story um, and doing what you do every day. Oh, thank you, Carmen, so much for taking this on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for being a listener and responding to the invitation. I really appreciate it. Friends, we'll be right back. Absolutely. God bless. Friends, uh, let's remember that the gospel is the very power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. We've got another hour up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.